now. Oh, yeah. He's a shining hero. Oh, yes, we do. What the world needs now. Oh, He's a glory man. Who will fly down. The following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. We now return to the strange and often colorful land of obscure superhero films you're likely to never have heard of before, with the return of Captain Invincible, a B-movie musical superhero comedy that isn't a sequel to anything despite having the word return in the title. It stars Academy Award-winning Alan Arkin, 23 years before he won said Academy Award. I've set out to review every American superhero film ever made, and while this movie was made in Australia and wasn't released in American theaters, it was supposed to have been. The distribution company went under days before it was set to hit American theaters. And the main theme of the film is the decline of America. In an hour and 40 minutes, there are songs, puns, slapstick humor, jabs at pop culture, social commentary, all wrapped up as a parody of the traditional patriotic American superhero. It's probably one of the most simultaneously entertaining and uneven superhero movies I've ever reviewed, in that I think it's really funny, and yet a lot of the funny bits interrupt or eclipse the surprisingly intelligent themes and character arcs. While it does fit squarely in the category of B-movie, The Return of Captain Invincible isn't review-proof, as I suggested Attack of the Killer Tomatoes might be when I reviewed that for Rewind United. This one isn't just a series of jokes loosely connected together by a simple premise with a story that's so incomprehensible it isn't meant to be thought about so much as laughed at. This movie is ridiculous to say the least, and yet there's a real story here. There's plenty of filler, and that's unfortunate. It's as if it's trying to fit in that B-movie category, and so it's going down a list of silly scenes and gags that must be included. There are several excuses for partial nudity, bizarre and unexplained characters and costumes, insanely over-the-top acting choices, and a food fight. And it's supposed to be a musical, but the songs happen so infrequently, I found myself jarred by them until about halfway through, having to remind myself this even was a musical, and while I actually I actually genuinely like some of the songs quite a bit, and a couple even serve the story rather than just being a reason to be strange or silly like a lot of them. The soundtrack doesn't really have a definitive sound. Every song, mostly written by Richard O'Brien and Richard Hartley, who wrote the music for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, is of an entirely different genre. There's an 80s pop standard, a country song, a gospel number, a lounge song. I'm sure the logic is that this is a parody and it's spoofing everything it can. But the trouble is, but the trouble is, I actually latched on to Captain Invincible's character arc, and I found all the rampant, directionless comedy distracting, and yet often undeniably funny. I'll give some examples of what I mean after some story analysis. Captain Invincible is a blend of Superman and Captain America, and with his alcoholism, I wondered if someone hadn't also read Iron Man, Demon in a Bottle, which came out only a few years before this. Captain Invincible is, as far as we're told, the world's only superpowered being, that symbol of American freedom everyone loves and looks up to, just like Superman, in fact, instead of Superman, as he battles the Axis nations through World War II. The movie deals a lot with the perception of how black and white things seemed in America during that period, encapsulated by Captain Invincible's song, The Good Guys and the Bad Guys. If you were good, you had self-respect, integrity, and pride in your country. If you were bad, you took advantage of people, and you were only out for yourself. He becomes disenfranchised with America when the lines between good guy and bad guy begin to blur because he's forced to stop fighting crime 
and go into hiding when charges are brought up against him in the late 1950s. As paranoia begins to grip the nation and people stop trusting in older, simpler ideals, he's accused of being a communist, even though all evidence says he's helping to fight Soviet Russia. He is wearing a red cape, after all. And remember, this was released two years before Watchmen. As goofy as the film is, some of the ideas are pretty original, especially for its time. All of this background is given to us in a series of newsreels that span a number of years right at the beginning, which is a somewhat awkward opening because it feels odd watching these film strips outside of any story framework. On the other hand, the newsreels turn out to be quite economical for the structure of the narrative as they serve to introduce both our hero and our villain, as well as the president when he's a child, set up a lot of story points and get a lot of backstory out of the way, and so the film almost never has to resort to flashbacks. So Captain Invincible gives up on America and himself, living as a homeless, drunk bum on the streets of Sydney for about three decades, all the while thinking he's still in New York. When his old arch-nemesis, Mr. Midnight, uses a giggle gun to steal a hypno-ray from the U.S. government, yep, that happens, the president puts out a call for Captain Invincible after singing a song about how tired he is of his staff's incompetent BS, which is just the word the acronym BS stands for over and over and over again, You'll never hear that anyplace else. And a gospel song about how the world, quote, needs a shining hero. An Australian policewoman, Patty Patria, happens to be saved by Invincible before the call goes out when she's attacked by a mugger's car with a flamethrower shooting out the front. I have no idea where he got that. Patty insists on police person because she's all about women's lib and Captain Invincible is so out of touch he's unfamiliar with political correctness. So she uses this as her chance to move up in the police ranks, having a difficult time being taken seriously as a female officer. And Captain Invincible reluctantly decides to help when the president himself pays him a visit and shows him the, quote, mystic mark that can never be broken that Captain Invincible gave him when he held his shoulder too hard as a kid as he told Invincible he was going to grow up and become the president. Captain Invincible spends a lot of the movie sobering up and relearning how to use his bizarre assortment of powers, real golden age sounding things like his amazing computer brain. He can also fly and has powers of magnetism and seems to have the general ability to never be harmed or touched by anything but alcohol as we see in the food fight scene when Patty is covered in food but he walks out without a crumb on him. Then again, that could have just been a gag the writer or the director thought was funny and we weren't meant to assume anything from it. That's the problem with this movie. Just when you think it has an internal logic, it throws something at you without any clear narrative intentions. The movie gets a lot of major superhero tropes in there. You've got your additional monikers, like Batman's the Cape Crusader or the Dark Knight, while Captain Invincible is also the Man of Magnet and Legend in Leotards. He has his special phrases that make his powers work, too. The Human Torch says, Flame on! Captain Invincible says, into the blue, when he wants to fly, etc. I like the running joke where, for years, he hasn't been able to remember what color he's supposed to say, so he'll say, into the green, or into the red. We briefly get a really weird origin for his powers, and that's the one flashback in the film. Some aliens are flying by, suspiciously in the same model saucer Klaatu used in the day the Earth stood still, and they send down some kind of energy while his parents are conceiving him that gives him all those abilities. Hilariously, they all start smoking right after the humans are finished having sex. I've always said origin pictures should be reserved for those heroes where there's really a story to tell there. Suffice it to say, I'm glad this wasn't an origin movie. 
One traditional idea that isn't here is the superhero's secret identity. Captain Invincible is never given another name in the film. I wonder if he really spent all his time in that silly getup that's supposed to look like an eagle is perched on his shoulders, but it only works if he puts the hood up, but when he does that, the whole thing looks even more ridiculous. It's kind of fun that he just identifies himself as Captain and doesn't mind not having a more regular name he goes by. I can relate. I like that his relationship to Captain America is more in story than in character, as he never served with the armed forces. At his congressional hearing, he's asked what he's the captain of, as he wasn't given that title in any official capacity. His alcohol addiction is both his kryptonite and his glacier. It's his greatest weakness, but it's also the thing that's kept him out of society so long. It's as if he was thought out or resurrected. So, like Captain America, he has to reacclimate himself to society, and he's unhappy with the way things have changed, with how people treat each other, and how modern Americans don't seem to believe in anything anymore. He spends a lot of time criticizing society for how it's lost its way and has become apathetic, and comes to realize that he's allowed the exact same thing to happen to him on an individual level. America stopped trusting him, and he stopped trusting America, and so both are to blame for the problems he sees. Mr. Midnight is played by the talented Christopher Lee, who plays it totally straight and seems completely confident he knows what his character is doing, even when I haven't got a clue. Midnight was a Nazi working right alongside Hitler, puts a genocidal plan in motion to kill off every racial minority in New York by mind-controlling people people he finds undesirable to relocate the housings he has set up, invoking concentration camps, interestingly, that he plans to blow up all at the same time. The moral is spoon-fed a bit at the end, but it's an idea I like. Once he's defeated Mr. Midnight, he gets on a megaphone and flies over to New York City, explaining that people have to learn to trust each other and work together, or they get split off into little groups, or go it alone as individuals, and that's where they're most vulnerable to the bad guys, illustrated by Midnight's plan, which nearly works until Invincible finally finds him. I like that the villain plot is directly tied into the major themes of the film. America has become more like Mr. Midnight would like it to be, and that makes it easier for him to manipulate it than in the 40s, when things seemed to be more about serving your country and neighbor than climbing corporate ladders, survival of the fittest, or at least that's how Captain Invincible remembers it. Certainly things are more complicated than that in any time period, and that's part of the film's anti-extremist point, I think. Captain Invincible believes people are black or they're white, good or evil, and he finds himself in a society that validates corruption with the argument of necessary evil, that life is all gray, so you have to be scheming and conniving or you can't survive. He becomes especially discouraged when people he thought he could trust, like the president, who he inspired to become the president, by the way, and who is just another part of a corrupt system that's more out for its own interests than really helping people. He becomes especially discouraged when he finds he can't trust people he thought he could, like the president, who he inspired to become the president, and who is just another part of a corrupt system that's more out for its own interests than really helping people. As his new friend Patty goes from someone who is just in it for herself to someone who comes to appreciate his values of honor and integrity, values she reminds him of by blasting God Bless America throughout Midnight's Lair at their pivotal moment when he's nearly beaten Captain Invincible with his greatest weakness alcohol, but not before he has the chance to sing an entire punny song about it, and Captain Invincible develops a hope for the future that the film optimistically seems to suggest the country can and will develop 
as well. The hero's journey here reflects the country he loves. It's flawed, it makes mistakes, it has really long dark patches, but if someone really cares enough about it, as the tagline on the DVD box says, it can be just great again. All of this is really hammed up, of course, because it's that kind of movie, but I really enjoyed the social commentary along with a little optimism. The idea that as society advances and thinks it's being more progressive, its ideas about how people should live actually become more primitive is interesting. Being a part of a food chain, rather than working together to better everyone's lives, is about as primal as I can imagine. Mr. Midnight is the personification of that ideal. I've seen this movie a few times now, and I still didn't catch this until my wife pointed it out to me, but there's a strange thread that begins in the first scene with Midnight that continues on throughout most of the movie, where he keeps feeding animals to bigger animals. Toward the end of the film, he finally sits down to eat, and he's eating the huge bird that devoured all the other animals we saw him with in the previous scenes. He's at the top of the food chain, illustrating his survival of the fittest mentality, literally. But all that story stuff really isn't at the forefront. The movie nearly apologizes for putting that stuff in there, as if it's worried about boring us with pesky things like plot and character development. So in an attempt to keep the audience laughing, the pacing is maddeningly wonky, because the story constantly gets interrupted with scenes that do nothing to further the narrative, but are often still pretty funny. Even in scenes that aren't really working for me, there's often something I can't help but snicker at, like when Captain Invincible throws the sign for mathematical pie in the middle of a food fight. I wasn't real keen on the scene where Captain Invincible and Patty are attacked by vacuum cleaners being controlled by Mr. Midnight, because while it's a clever homage to Indiana Jones, complete with vacuum tubes coming out of his skull's eye holes, it seems to go on forever. But it was almost worth it to hear Captain Invincible say, nature abhors a vacuum. And there are some no-doubt 60s Batman-inspired puns, like Midnight's various pits, the snake pits, the crocodile pits, and then of course you have to have a peach pit. The song most people I've talked to who have seen this really latch onto is Midnight's Alcohol Song. I think mostly because it's Christopher Lee's big solo and the man can't sing, but he's really selling it. I rather prefer his duet with Alan Arkin, where they sing in separate locations because of all of Christopher Lee's hysterical spoken word lines. There is evil everywhere! The music is, I think, incredibly hit or miss. Some songs, like Good Guys and Bad Guys, are pretty solid numbers and actually tell you something about the person singing them, although that might be less the song there and more that Alan Arkin gives such a sincere and genuine performance. He doesn't seem to have any idea how nutty the world he lives in is, just like a superhero in a Golden Age comic would be. And then you have unbearable songs, like the pop ballad Patty sings to Invincible, trying to convince him to help find the hypno-ray, regardless of how he feels about modern America, and he finally stops the record player and agrees just so she'll stop singing. I would have too. Finally, I realize it's a really low-budget movie, but there are a lot of odd choices in cinematography and such that wouldn't cost any more to just be better conceived or thought out. When Invincible is drunk and standing on a mountain during the opening credits, there's like 20 flyby shots of him singing New York, New York and falling down, and they just get faster and faster. Probably intentional, but then the movie goes off and makes me invest in its protagonist and stuff, and I'm wanting it to be less of a farce, because the crux of it really isn't just straight, goofy nonsense. The scenes with Midnight and his lair are practically incomprehensible until after a couple of viewings, or at least they were for me, and his plot is poorly presented. 
For a while, I didn't even pick up that it was a genocide plot because of the emphasis I thought was being put on the hypnotized people giving Midnight all their money. I thought it was just a giant money-making scheme at first, and toward the end, Midnight starts doing a traditional villain monologue to Captain Invincible explaining things. I could have used that earlier when he was just singing to himself, feeding animals, and saying Swiss bank account numbers over the telephone. The return of Captain Invincible could have been more cohesive and still retained a lot of that comedy, and I think even a lot of the silly stuff could have been made to work within a more focused framework while allowing the story about a washed-out superhero trying to find motivation to live in the modern world come to the forefront. I would imagine most viewers would see the food fight and the gratuitous underwear shots and dismiss it as an unsophisticated juvenile B-movie. And it is an unsophisticated juvenile B-movie, and I can enjoy it on that level. But there's also a little more to it than that. With a more specific vision, there could have been a lot more to it than that. I'm going to give The Return of Captain Invincible a 2 out of 4. And join me next time on Rewind for a Rewind United on Stargate from 1994. Stay tuned. Now who's wearing black hats and who's wearing white? on the side of justice and right Well, the line is so fine between heaven and hell Not even a hero can tell The good guys from the bad guys